Together in God's holy word in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, we'll read through verse 10, and we will look phrase by phrase at verse 9 and 10. So if you want to uh, there's uh, three points, but it's really, really uh, each phrase of verse 9 and 10 is a point in the sermon. So we look together at God's holy word, the truth of the gospel, the good news of God's saving grace. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe... He is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they, were also, uh, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. People of God. The text set before us uh, this, uh, this the, 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 the phrase uh, that I believe in Uh, summarizes in is kind of the overall declaration of each of the 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 sub points is uh, you are now the people of God I am your God and you are my people and in some ways uh, particularly uh, the first point uh, emphasizes that is that we have in verse 9 this portrait of the people of God And in the second part of verse 9, we have the purpose of the people of God. And the third, we have the past and present uh, compared of where we once were and now what we are as the people of God, a past and present comparison. And so those three points, uh, but really following uh, the text for each of the sub points, and so we look together at this, and, and one of the, the great truths of application of this text uh, is uh, the fact of the, close, the absolute unity of the Old and the New Testament and how the New Testament people of God is the church of Jesus Christ. And so if we would say who... Uh, who where is the city of God today? We wouldn't say it's Jerusalem. Uh, we would say it's the people of God. And if we would ask, 
who are the people of God? Who are the chosen race? We would say it's the church, and we'll see that in this text. But uh, that, of course, has direct application to so much, but it, it also uh, one of the clear applications, and because of that, I will be looking at uh, more texts, particularly as the Old Testament relates to this verse than I normally do in a sermon. Uh, but we'll look to see that close relationship between the Old and New Testament and the, the oneness of the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. And of course, that would uh, 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 there's applications such as uh, we would not support uh, Israel in its war uh, because uh, there may be all kinds of reasons to do that, uh, we're not really talking about that, but one of the reasons we wouldn't do it is we wouldn't say, well, they are God's chosen people and we need to protect Jerusalem. No, that is not uh, a reason. Uh, and so why is that? Well, it's because the church is the people of God. And there are not two peoples of God. There is one people of God. And they are described for us in this passage. And the description of who we are implies of what we're supposed to do. Just as who God is uh, makes what he does. God isn't who he, what he does. He is who he is. And then because of who he is, he does what he does. And because of who we are as the people of God, that that drives us to do what we do as a people of God. And so it's always critical and a good thing to be reminded of who we are, even what we are as, as creatures, new creatures in Christ. Who are we? And so uh, it begins. Uh, we are not those who stumble being disobedient, but you are, you are a chosen generation. Well, we know who the you are is described in, in verse 1 and 2. Uh, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our God and Father. We are the elect of God. We are the chosen generation. We are chosen. And that word chosen uh, could be translated, we are the elected ones, we are the chosen. And God, uh, God election he, uh, is one which is specific. He, he has a chosen group of people. And of course, that's a, a theme and great description of, of the Old Testament people of God, or I should say the Old Testament uh, time of the people of God, because they're really, we're part of that people of God. And so Deuteronomy will, will declare to us the nature of that people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 is one of, I mean, there's 
hundreds of, of examples. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And that, that passage uh, describes and, and sets before us a fundamental description of the people of God in the Old Testament. And they are chosen. Uh, you are chosen. The chosen people of God. Uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 2 of Deuteronomy would have the same theme, as well as I said, hundreds of other Old Testament texts. 14, verse 2, But you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, that special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Just the repeated theme over and over again. Isaiah, uh, it does, so you can go to the prophets and you'll see the same kind of theme. Isaiah 45, uh, Isaiah 45, uh, verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have, e I have even called you by name. I have named you, though you, are not, though you have not known me. I have known you. I have elected you. I have chosen you. And of course, we have a good description and a, and a biblical understanding of the nature of that chosen. And we confess it in our confessions, particularly and succinctly in the Canons of Dort in its section on unconditional election. The first section of the, uh, of the Canons as, as we have an understanding of the very nature of this being elected by God. But it also says that you are a chosen a generation. It is a chosen generation. Now, this word generation, uh, that's a, a word that's, uh, that's kind of an important. Um, in the American Standard Version, for instance, it says, but you are a elect race, a race. And the word generation here it doesn't have so much the connotation of a generation of, you know, a one generation, then the next generation. It does have uh, within it uh, the context of a racial aspect to it. It's really the race. You are a chosen race. Well, in the Old Testament, it was very clear that uh, God would set before his people and he would identify them as a chosen race. Race, Jews, um, the an ethnic uh, people of God that came from Abraham. It was a race. Now it wasn't only a race, and you could be uh, you could be incorporated into the nation uh, of Israel. That that was entirely possible. But even the incorporation uh, of a person into the nation of Israel. Um, uh, was one in which race was recognized. It was, an it was an important aspect. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 2 verse 8, it will talk about the nature of uh, race and the importance of one's racial identity. And so it'll say, um, and when it turns, uh, it, it says, uh, let's say verse 3, an Amorite or Moabite, 
shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. But what if an Ammonite or a Moabite becomes a part of the people? Can they ever enter? Yes, they can enter. They can become uh, integrated into the race of the Jewish people. But uh, even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord uh, forever. Okay, but after the 10th generation, he can enter. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam and the son of Beor and Pethor of the Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to them. But, uh, and then in verse 7, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. And the children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So uh, these racial uh, identifiers were important in the Old Testament. And now who's the chosen race? Who is the chosen race? It's the church of Jesus Christ is the chosen race. It's no longer... Uh, the, the focus isn't on a racial uh, identity in terms of ethnicity. The focus is that you are a chosen race as the people of God of the New Testament, those who are elect in Christ, those who are Christians are the elect race. Well, people of God, that has all kinds of implications, doesn't it? It means that there's no, there's no racial identity of the church as such, but the church itself is a race. That's how God looks at the church. And now they happen to be uh, racially uh, uh, diverse. Uh, God says, from every tribe and nation and people and tongue, he is going to call his people together. And so it doesn't matter what racial background you might have, what your ethnic background is. Uh, one of the key elements that we ought to think about ourselves is that the church of Jesus Christ is the race of God. We are the race of God. And that doesn't matter uh, what your background race is. We've had people get that wrong all the time. Some people think I have a Dutch background. Well, that's actually not true. I'm Frisian, right? So you got you to you know the background, right? And so what's race? Well, people of God, uh, this then has all kinds of, of application to us and how we ought to think. But never think in terms of, well, what racial background are they in order to become a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Because the church is itself the race. And so it doesn't matter what racial background we have. For God has gathered us from every race as a people of God. He has that. And of course the New Testament is that declaration. Even Paul calling it the part of the mystery of uh, the mystery of the gospel. Is that it goes out to every tribe and nation and people and tongue. And Ephesians chapter 4 uh, describes for us that breakdown of, and the reality that out of the two, God has made one out of Jew and Gentile. The, the God-ordained Old Testament distinction of race is now broken down in the New Testament 
And so Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one. And the both there is Jew and Gentile. The race of the Jews and every other race, which they looked at as being basically the same thing. But God is the one who ordained that. We read that in Deuteronomy. That wasn't an evil thing, but in the New Testament church, in Jesus Christ, that is broken down and now there's one. For he himself is our peace who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandment, like Deuteronomy, contained in ordinances which were not evil in themselves, so as to create in himself one new man, one new race, from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be that place where any enmity between the races is absolutely and fundamentally broken down. You are a chosen elect race generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Now we know in God's word, and we see that in the history of Israel, uh, a, a absolute biblical standard that in the Old Testament there was a clear distinction between priest and king. The priest came from the house of Aaron and the kings from the house of David and a king was not allowed to be a priest and a priest ought not to be a king. But you are a royal priesthood. And of course, Hebrews is the one that informs us that this royal priesthood has a pattern in the Old Testament, namely Melchizedek, uh, who was both priest and king, his name meaning king of righteousness. And so he is both a priest and a king. And that's what Jesus is. And because Jesus is the priest king, you are and we are in Christ and our salvation is in Christ and our office as believer is foundation, found itself in Christ. And so we are Christians and we are prophets, priests, and kings. You are a royal priesthood that you may proclaim prophethood. And so this passage, of course, is one that I've actually preached out of uh, the catechism on what does it mean to be a Christian. Prophet, priest, and king in this passage are so clear. But this fact that in the church of Jesus Christ, there's no longer the distinction between prophet, priest, and king because each and every believer is a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. You all have, in that sense, the office of prophet, priest, and king as it would set before us, according to the order of Melchizedek. And God's word would make that clear in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, the wonders of Christ and how he fulfilled all this is set before us beginning with verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest king to Jesus Christ. 
who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of uh, his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so that uh, priesthood in Christ then come to us. But this is the language of the Old Testament people of God. Uh, and the Old Testament people of God and the, the institutions of the priesthood and the, and the royal line of David and, and as a nation itself are to reflect even those things in Exodus, in Genesis 18, verse 18. Uh, Abraham is called to be a blessing to the nations with, a, with an idea of he is a witness and a proclamation. In Exodus 19, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So even in the Old Testament, there was an aspect that the nation had a priesthood calling. Now that was fulfilled primarily by the priests. But in the New Testament, it is fulfilled by the people of God. The people of God. And so... God has called us uh, to be that people uh, that, uh, that reflects this royal priesthood. You are a special, uh, you are a holy priesthood, a, ro- a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy nation. Well, we just saw that passage uh, in uh, Exodus, a whole, you are a priesthood, a holy nation uh, to the Lord, uh, and, and that is that repeated theme over and over again of the nation of Israel. Uh, they are a holy nation. They are set apart. Uh, they are unique among all the nations of the Old Testament world as the people of God. And in the New Testament, the holy nation is not Israel in a geographical location. It is the church universal in every location, in every geographical location of the earth, it is the church that is the holy nation. And so we ought not to be thinking in terms of the holy nation being uh, ethnic, uh, the literal Israel today in Palestine. The holy nation is the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, the word nation Uh, that is used here is a word that's almost used exclusively. uh, So there's a translation in the Septuagint. And the word nation is not the normal word that would be used for the nations, but it's the nation Israel. Uh, But in the New Testament, uh, this word nation, it has to do with the translation of the Old Testament uh, into Greek, but that word for nation, they, they even had the trans, uh, a word that they translated for the nation of Israel to be a unique word that uh, almost always applied only to Israel and wasn't the same word they would use for the nations, which would be Gentiles most often, like that would be the Gentiles. 
In other words, there's even a uniqueness to the word itself, this Greek word nation, that's just used of Israel. And, but here and now, it's used for the church, a holy nation, a holy, set-apart nation. In order that, uh, and so you are his own special people. Well, the people of God, the word people of God now appears here before it appears the second part, a special uh, people. And what is a special people? Well, the meaning of the word special here uh, has every connection to a, uh, it literally means a people for possession. A people for possession. Owned by God. Possessed. Uh, the, we are the possession of God. His own possession. His own special people. Uh, but, but there's a, a, a real idea in the word of being uh, that we are possessed by God. Not in the sense that he's, you know, like uh, we're possessed by God possessing us in us. But the fact that we are owned by God. And of course, we know that in the Old Testament, that would be another declaration concerning the Old Testament people of God, that they were owned by God. They were his special people. They were his inheritance would be another word similar to. So that's my inheritance. And the inheritance is, is something that you possess. And God says, you are my inheritance. You are my possession. And of course, we confess that in one in Lord's Day, Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. We are not our own. We belong to God. We are his possession. And coming out of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 19, uh, that uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 19, which is the, the foundational proclamation there, right, of the of the catechism, a biblical, or do you, a uh, biblical uh, reference, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are Christ, both body and soul, body and spirit are his. We are his possession, both body and soul, we are his. And so people of God, uh, that Heidelberg Catechism question and answer and, and this description of who we are is the very opposite of how our world thinks, isn't it? Our world thinks we are our own and we can do whatever we want to with our own body because our soul, our, and they may not believe in a soul, uh, who we are is I possess myself. I am owned by myself. I am not owned by any other. That's the very heart of, of the uh, pro-abortionist who likes to describe themselves as pro-choice, which is actually more uh, as antithetical to the truth of God's word as, as to be in favor of murder is to say, I am my own, which is an arrogant, pride-filled declaration before the creator and maker and, and ultimately redeemer of his own, but it is a pride-filled declaration of 
I can choose to do whatever I want with my body because it is mine. It is not yours by creation. It is not yours by redemption. Our bodies are not ours. Our minds are not ours. Our souls are not ours. They are the possession of God. And we rejoice in that as God's people. We say, what a glorious thing. I am God's. I am his possession. I am his special treasure. This is not something to, to go, oh, isn't this a horrible thing? God owns me and he thinks he can do whatever he wants to do with me. No. We rejoice that we are God's. It is my only comfort in life and death that I am not my own. And it is a blessed testimony to a world that is so confused. And our purpose is then to proclaim the praises of him who called us. It is our purpose. There we got the word call, that re-emphasis of God's electing love, his calling, his, his absolutely effectual calling. But it is a calling in which uh, he, it is that, that we are this, that we may proclaim the praises of him. We are to proclaim, to communicate, to verbally uh, communicate. And this isn't just a, a pastor's responsibility. We saw that the you is clearly uh, the church as a whole, the individual members of it. Uh, you are called to proclaim, to proclaim the, pra the, the praises um, of him. And so this is every believer's responsibility is to communicate verbally uh, the glorious truths of the gospel. We are to be witnesses to that. Uh, we are to tear down the strongholds and we are to give a good defense and know the power of the gospel is unto salvation. Preached by preachers and told by prophet, priest, kings, believers. We are to proclaim, uh, uh, we are to proclaim this uh, to God in praise. We are to proclaim it to our world in witness. But we are to proclaim. And then it says to proclaim, uh, this, is, this is, of course, we've moved on to the next point, to proclaim the praises of him, the praises of him. Now, that's an odd word. I think it's a little uh, difficult translation in the uh, New King James. Because what do we mean when we say the praises of him? The praises. Now, usually we think we praise God. And now we're talking about the praises of him. Well, this word praises has, uh, has the meaning of, uh, it, it would include the attributes. It's the, it, it could be the excellencies of God. One translation would translate it, the excellencies of God. And it's not a focus on the works of God, but on the person of God. It's the excellencies, the many qualities, the valor, uh, the nobility. Excellencies has within it, uh, the praises excellencies has within it a context, a, a, a significance of nobility, the nobility of God. Now, we're not keen on nobility in America. We, we reject the king. Uh, but uh, nations that have nobility, uh, 
you, you don't really want to mock uh, the queen or the king of a certain nation. Uh, many years ago, I had a, uh, I took a, a, actually a non-Christian home for Christmas that was a, a student at Calvin, but he was from the Netherlands, and my, my first cousin kind of mocked the queen, and he was like, this guy, he, he went off the rails. You, you don't mock a queen. That's nobility, right? You honor, you, 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 you uphold the queen, right? But people of God, God is king. He is God. He is the excellency. Sometimes the kings are called your excellency. No, there's only one excellency, and that is God. And we want to, we want to proclaim the praises, the, the excellency of God himself. And we want to proclaim uh, the, what God has done. But it's very difficult to tell people what God has done if they don't even know who is doing what. We need to tell people who God is. Because we have a world that has really no idea who God is. They make up their own God. They have false gods. They think that if they're, they may even think, well, I believe in the same God that Christians believe in and, and, and Jews believe in and Muslims believe in. We all believe in the same God. Well, now they have no idea who God is. Because the Jews today do not worship God, and Muslims don't worship God. There's only one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rejected by every uh, liberal or conservative uh, Jewish group. And certainly the Muslim God is not the true God. There's only, and we need to proclaim the excellencies of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and that He is a, a God who is all powerful, all knowing, everywhere present, but a God who has revealed Himself to us. And so, this is the God who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we were, who were once not the people are now the people of God and who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, that phrase we could have uh, multiple sermons on. Why is that? Because there are times in scripture where the text will revert to an illustration that is so broad in scripture that you could preach a long time out of, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because it includes so much. And, and there's no way that you can exhaust the depths of that illustration in Scripture. But I will very quickly uh, go through a couple of things. Uh, where, where light and darkness is applied to a very specific thing. In this text... Uh, the implication is, is that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light and there's a movement from, for, the, uh, for a person to come from darkness to light and, and we would think unbelief to belief. But in scripture, darkness and light are contrasted in many, many different ways. 
Uh, Psalm 112, verse 4, it is the darkness and light of a false god versus the true God. Upon the upright there arises light in darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. God is light and the false gods are darkness. In Ecclesiastics 2.13, uh, then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. God's wisdom is light. The foolishness of man is darkness. Uh, Jesus Christ, of course, we ought to know that. Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shone. And of course, Jesus declares, I am the way. Uh, I am the light of the world, John 8, verse 12. He who, walks in dark, uh, uh, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Jesus is the light. And the path that we are to walk is light, contrasted to unrighteousness, which is darkness. The light of knowledge of God versus the darkness of idolatry, uh, particularly 2 Corinthians uh, 4, uh, verse 6. For it is God who has commanded to light shine, to, uh, commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus as the light is itself light versus the darkness of ignorance and the rejection of Christ. The light of love versus the darkness of hate. The light of righteousness versus the darkness of sin. And we can go on to see this contrast in Scripture as it uses these things over and over. And you were not a people, but now are the people of God. Why were you saved? In order to be washed from your sin? Why were you saved? In order not to go to hell, why were you saved? You were saved to be God's eternal people. All of that was to accomplish a reality that you are now a people of God, the people of God. We were not simply saved to see Sin removed. Sin's removed for a purpose. And the purpose is that we are the people of God. And apart from the saving work of Christ, we couldn't be the people of God. But the saving work of Christ was to accomplish a goal far more than the removal of sin. The removal of sin ushers in, us into the, re, the reality of being a people blessed by God. And the removal of his sin is a, itself a blessing of God. You are the people. So whether it's that first declaration to Abraham, like in Genesis 17 and other places, where in Genesis 17, uh, the, the key aspect is verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting God to be God to you and to your descendants after you. It is that I'm going to be an everlasting God to you. I am your God. And so it is at the very end of Scripture as it anticipates and looks uh, to uh, the fullness of our uh, walk with God face to face in the new heavens and in the new earth. Revelation 21, 
very end of Scripture. Genesis 17, the very beginning of Scripture. Verse 3, as it introduces the holy city, uh, the new Jerusalem. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And this is in the new heaven and the new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 21, verse 1. And a holy city coming down, the Old Testament, all the people of God who have died coming down to the new, the new earth and the new, with a new heaven. And I, and I heard with a loud voice from heaven, seven, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You are the people of God. You will be the people of God, for all eternity. For you have received mercy in Christ. Amen. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, what a privilege, what a joy, what a blessing, what grace bestowed that we, O oh God, can call you our God. That you call us your people May we rest in this. May we rejoice in this. May we live out the reality of who we are in this lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.